morning. Welcome to Rising. We have a stellar show for you today. So excited to tell you about it. Brianna, what's going on? Well, Denise Long will join us to discuss that comment from Senator Tommy Tuberville. Plus, we'll get into new updates from Brett Favre's welfare fraud scandal. But first, NATO is set to go forward next week with flying nuclear-capable aircraft as part of a long-planned annual deterrence exercise. This despite escalating tensions between the West and Russia. According to the Associated Press, the aircraft will not be fitted with live bombs, and exercises are set to take place over 600 miles away from the Russian border. This comes just after the G7 renewed its pledge to support Ukraine through the war, quote, as long as it takes. Meanwhile, President Biden spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper last night about the growing threat of nuclear war between the West and Russia. Let's watch. How realistic is it, do you think, that Putin would use a tactical nuclear weapon? Well, I, I don't think he will, but I think it's irresponsible for him to talk about it. The idea that a world leader of a, one of the largest nuclear powers in the world says he may use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, and the whole point I was making was it could lead to just a horrible outcome, and uh, not because anybody intends to turn it into a world war or anything, but it just once you use a nuclear weapon, the mistakes that can be made, the miscalculations, who knows what would happen. What is the red line for the United States and NATO? And have you directed the Pentagon and other agencies to game out what a response would be if he did use a tactical nuclear weapon or if he bombed the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine or anything along those lines? There's been discussions on that, but I'm not going to get into that. It would be irresponsible for me to talk about what we would or wouldn't do. So this... Um this NATO exercise of nuclear, flying a nuclear-capable airplane, uh, my understanding is it was, it's like an annual thing or a semi-regular thing that was scheduled um, before the invasion of Ukraine began. So it's not a response to anything happening. It might be ill-advised to do it right now in this moment, but take that for what it's worth. Um, what did you make of Biden's comments to Jake Tapper? Yeah, Jake Tapper's question about what is the red line is the only question. Yeah. It's the question that I've been asking since February. Just explain to me what the contours of this are. How involved do you want to be and why? This is the other question that rarely gets asked. Why is it that the United States is in the role of the policeman in this situation, regardless of what you think about the um, behavior of the actors at play and who's at fault? That's not really in contention here. The contention is what is America's role in resolving it and how much is America willing to commit to resolving it? And I found Joe Biden's answer to be completely underwhelming. The fact it's not just that he doesn't want to have a public discussion about how far America is willing to go. There is no public discussion about where, how far America is willing to go anywhere at all in the public sphere. From the beginning, any allusion to the idea that there would be a negotiated resolution, which of course, the whole definition of negotiation means that both sides give in a little bit, both sides lose a little bit. That has been characterized as a desire to bend the knee to Russia and somehow validate their invasion in a way that is morally uh, repugnant and politically ill-advisable. But the alternative to that is obviously going up to the brink or crossing over that red line into nuclear war. And no, not only is nobody willing to really contend with that in the public sphere, we are getting dangerously closer, closer and closer to coming to that point because no one will be honest about the potential consequences here. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that obviously Joe Biden is, I guess, not going to go into detail about what the precise retaliatory plan looks like. But the question is, like, would we do a retaliatory plan? 
I mean, obviously, it's, it's incomprehensible that we've gotten to this point, and we were the, the whatever it takes, as long as it takes kind of rhetoric doesn't help without any plan to have a negotiation. But it, what happens if Putin, feeling cornered, feeling no way out of this, increasingly desperate and erratic, as I would argue he has been, um, engages in a nuclear strike on Ukraine, a country we are not committed to defending on paper that is not a part of NATO. This is what this whole struggle is about. Struggle so we are not obligated to respond in any way, you know, legally from, from our agreements. Now, we don't want that to happen. So are, are we saying we're going to say there's going, there would be that, that a nuclear attack even on a country that is not a NATO uh, not a part of NATO, not a, not committed to be defended, that will invite nuclear retaliata- retaliation by the U.S. or by its partner nations, irrespective of yeah. any under, any under. Oh, look, I, I think alliance. that's what's tacit that's here. That's basically what he's saying. And, and what but now, but is he to... saying that just because, in kind of the Taiwan sense, because we're trying to discourage nuclear action from being taken, not because we would actually follow through? But then, if you, if you don't follow through on threats. Eventually, yeah. your word doesn't mean anything. And it's important to note that the likelihood of nuclear, um, someone actually deploying a nuclear bomb, grows because of the nuclear strategy that's been adopted since you know, the Cold War, which is to make nuclear bombs smaller so that they are easier to use. So this idea that, oh, well, no, Russia would never do that or America would never do that because the bombs are so big and the devastation in Hiroshima and Nagasaki are so, it was so extreme right. and so many civilians died that who could possibly, who would, who would go down that route? It's not exactly the same calculation that we're in now because people have made little bombs that they feel like only devastate a smaller percentage of the population or can be blasted in some of the scenarios that um, were walked through in a, in a recent, um, I think, Times article, you know, blowing up, sending a, bl- a warning bomb over uh, the ocean or in an unpopulated area and to start building it up that way. These are all things that are unwilling to be taken off the table per the president and per the public discussion right now. And I think that should be very worrisome for people. Right. But if, now, of course, Russia should take them off the table, too, by just vowing uh, not to use a nuclear weapon and, in fact, just ending this pointless, costly war but we don't have any control over what they yeah. do. We do have control over but, what but we ima- do. Imagine if there were a, the kind of tone that said, all of us uh, live, uh, share one planet. You know, As responsible leaders, we should both be committing not to use nuclear force in this exchange. Mm-hmm. But that is not that kind of mutual de-escalation is not the kind of language that we're seeing right now from, from any corner. In other news, tech CEO Elon Musk is fighting off allegations that he okayed his proposed Russia-Ukraine peace plan directly with Vladimir Putin before posting it. According to Musk, quote, I have spoken to Putin only once, and that was about 18 months ago. The subject matter was space. I believe this was prompted by some journalist figure, some name I often see on social media. I don't actually know what their affiliation is, Mm. um, who suggested that Elon had been in recent conversation with Vladimir Putin, which... Which now Elon denies, so I don't know who's right. Yeah. I don't. I don't see why Matt. I, Elon Musk is free to talk to Vladimir Putin. Um, the the plan that Elon Musk put forward. Okay, Elon Musk is not our ambassador. He's <laughs> right. not a diplomat. We're like I'm not. Yeah. But but the plan he put forward was fine. It was it, it was a you know a call for a peace settlement that maybe involves some territorial cessations to Russia in the part of of Ukraine that is is more interested in being part of Russia. He said, I believe in the plan, he said, their sh- should, should election vote. should be held yeah. and they should be supervised by the UN. 
and then there should be a commitment from both sides to do whatever the result of that is. That is a reasonable plan. It's certainly within the ballpark of reasonable. Yeah. So I don't care. It's, it's good if he, if he talked to I hope he did talk to Vladimir Putin about it. Yeah, I do think we have a problem where there is a, an instinct to com always make the argument of like association, negative association, rather than to make the substantive argument about why a plan isn't good or, or why somebody's argument isn't good, especially in the Twitter space. There's a lot of, oh, you can't be trusted because you work for this organization or because you're a grifter in this way. Or well, and it's a lot of, but that's actually, what I was seeing was a lot of, well, you're not an expert, so how dare you have an opinion? Right, appeals I hate to authority. That. The tweet, the, 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 like, hey, history PhD here, let me explain to you why you're, yeah. I hate that. I, there's nothing I loathe more yeah. than that kind of trend of experts with fancy degrees and PhDs, many of whom have advised catastrophic foreign policy decisions right. and who I, are hawkish by reflex. And that's not to say that obviously expertise doesn't have its place, but on Twitter, when you're looking at people having these fights, you don't learn anything by people just calling each other names and saying that they're not expert enough to weigh in. Make your substantive argument and we can see if it rises or falls. But I'm much more interested in reading why people think a resolution like the one Musk presented would fail or be inappropriate much more than I'm interested in reading about how it's just two Putin's talking points and therefore presumptively a bad idea. If you but if you put your your intel your uh, academic credential, hey, duh, I'm just not going to listen. <laughs> not going to listen. Sick of it. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what's on my radar next as a professional <laughs> a professional podcaster. Esquire. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Stay tuned. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, as we covered yesterday on the show, Tulsi Gabbard, former representative for Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District, announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party. Now, mainstream corporate Democrats had a predictable response. For example, activist Charlotte Clymer, uh, journalist Dan Rather, and dozens of others tweeted some version of Kel surprise, alluding to a perceived shift by Tulsi toward conservative news sources and talking points over the course of the last couple of years. Leftists tended toward a more substantive critique, pointing out, as Ben Norton of The Gray Zone did, that while the Democratic Party is deeply neoliberal and pro-imperialist, calling it anti-white, as she did in her viral announcement video, is, quote, absurd right-wing culture war nonsense. But Norton's most important point, and the one I want to focus on, is his next one. The problem isn't that Gabbard is wrong about the Democratic Party. It is imperialist. It is corrupt. However, the problem is that without a similarly robust critique of the neoliberal corporate Wall Street Republicans, she's simply co-opting a genuine anti-war concern to sheepdog genuinely anti-war voters toward a party that has no intention of, well, stopping endless wars. This is a disappointing turn. Like most leftists, I was introduced to Tulsi when she courageously resigned as vice chair of the DNC to support Bernie Sanders, citing her experience as a military veteran and the fact that she wanted the United States to avoid interventionist wars of regime change. Take a listen. The American people are faced with a very clear choice. We can elect a president who will lead us into more interventionist wars of regime change, or we can elect a president who will usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. It's with this clear choice in mind that I'm resigning as vice chair of the DNC so that I can strongly support Bernie Sanders as the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. 
But her anti-war stance rings somewhat hollow when she reserves no criticism for the war hawks in the Republican Party, too. For example, in May, after Congress passed $40 billion in aid for Ukraine, Gabbard tweeted her concern that, as Americans struggled with rising gas prices and inflation, Washington rushed to fund yet another endless war, a fair criticism in my book, and one which we've raised repeatedly on this show. But the overwhelming majority of Republicans in the House, all but 57 of them, voted for the $40 billion in Ukraine aid, and only 11 Republican senators out of 50, of course, voted against it. Certainly, certainly more Republicans and Democrats voted for the funding, including independent senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, who has been oddly silent on the escalations in the region and calls for peace from the left. Still, it's important to recognize that the, quote, permanent Washington establishment, as she describes it, is a dangerous bird that needs two wings to fly. Biden and the Democrats absolutely deserve criticism for using Raytheon as a recruiting ground for defense secretaries and for taking millions of dollars from the defense industry when running for office. But that's also true of Donald Trump and some of the top takers of defense contractor money are, in fact, Republicans. David Perdue of Georgia, Roy Blunt of Missouri, Susan Collins of Maine, and Rick Scott of Florida top the list, followed by Democrat Tom Carper from Biden's home state. According to a 2020 Sledge report, 51 members of Congress and their spouses own between $2.3 and $5.8 million of stocks in companies that are among the top 30 defense contractors in the world. The conflict of interest is obvious. More than 70% of Lockheed Martin's $51 billion in 2018 revenue came from sales to the U.S. government, and nearly one-third of the members of the Senate Defense Subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee own stocks in top defense contractors. Simply put, when war happens, stocks go up. When Trump killed Iranian General Soleimani, dozens of members of Congress saw their portfolio value bump due to the possibility of war. War quite literally pays for the people we expect to keep the peace. But those people, those guilty parties, are in both political camps. The solution to this war profiteering may very well involve leaving the Democratic Party. I certainly left it a long time ago. But I am not so naive as to believe that the Republican Party, with its open courtship of weapons manufacturers, is the solution. Perhaps more puzzling about Tulsi's pivot is that her allusion to culture wars as a motivation for her departure is a little out of place. On one level, I understand this too. Part of my choice to distance myself from Democrats was my belief that they weaponized identity and representational politics to avoid dealing with the material economic concerns so many working people, white, black, brown, Asian alike, are struggling with. But the point of that critique is to help working people not to invest in a different kind of right-wing identity politics, where fears about a war on religion or a war on white people are simply replacements for the Democrats' identity politics wars. Tulsi wrote, quote, I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that is now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoke anti-white racism, actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms enshrined in our Constitution, are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, demonize the police and protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, and on and on and on. 
Like, I strongly object to any politics that diminishes the struggles of working class and poor white Americans, like all Americans. I've argued to editorial boards where I've worked in the past that they should cover midterm elections from the perspective of who is best meeting the needs of the opioid crisis, and which disproportionately, although not exclusively, harms white folks. I think it's a tragic reality that life expectancy has declined for white Americans, and that my generation is the first to take a step back from the American dream. At the same time, however, I push for an inclusive message that affirmatively values all Americans, even if at times it's necessary to specifically call out prejudices that rear their heads against specific groups, whether it's the white supremacist attacks on Jewish people during Charlottesville or at the Tree of Life massacre, or whether it's the Buffalo shooting which targeted black Americans, or the Uvalde shooting in a Latino community that targeted children. Is there a space to critique all kinds of bigotry in Tulsi's vision or just anti-white racism? I, I truly don't know, and this is a question I'm genuinely curious to see the answer to, and which I think Tulsi should try to answer in the coming days and weeks. Moreover, I'd like to hear from her what constitutes demonizing the police. Is it wrong to, say, criticize their ineptitude in Uvalde? The fact that increased funding, including under the Biden administration, hasn't actually led to lower crime. If I agree with the majority of LA conservatives that I support reallocating parts of LAPD's budget to social workers, mental health care, and other social services, is that demonizing the police? Does this reallocation, sometimes referred to as defunding, seem less like demonizing the police when I point out that according to this recent Marymount poll, support for reallocating the police budget to social services is higher among people who live with a cop than people who don't? Look, Tulsi is right when she writes that the pro-war Democratic Party has led us to the brink of nuclear war, but it didn't do it alone. Tulsi is poised to make a powerful statement against our two-party duopoly, and if she does, calling out both parties for their choice to weaponize the security state and federal law enforcement, not just for political reasons, but to oppress the poor who languish disproportionately in our country's overfull prisons, she could be a powerful positive force in this country. If she talked about how the IRS overtargets poor people who are easy to audit rather than going after the rich, partly because they are insufficiently staffed and funded to do so, it would strengthen her critique of that agency. For all of the culture war bluster in her Substack post, the word poor shows up zero times. The word working, as in working people or working class, it shows up exactly once. I humbly submit that what America needs is not another culture warrior. What made Tulsi admired by many across the political spectrum in the first instance was her commitment to speaking hard truths about the military-industrial complex and taking politically inconvenient stands that lost her powerful friends. Exchanging one elite party for another would seem to defeat the point. As one leftist YouTuber wrote, leaving the Dems for the GOP is like leaving Cherry Coke for Classic Coke. Are we looking for something substantively different or just a new flavor of gas? Bernie, the guy Tulsi once gave up her DNC position for, is too quiet on Ukraine, but he hasn't stopped foregrounding the needs of working people, catching flack from the establishment after he criticized the Democrats for focusing so much of their midterm advertising on abortion to the exclusion of economic issues that polls show majorities still prioritize. Will Tulsi champion working people in that way? 
Will she foreground talk of a minimum wage, a well-taxed health care for all, all policies she wants backed as a Bernie delegate? The Lever just reported that 12 years after the ACA, big insurers are getting most of their money from the government and have jacked up prices by nearly 24%. Do issues like that matter at least as much as a war on religion that, by the way, no one has hardly defined, much less proposed a solution to? Our profit-based medical system is so cruel that children's beds are being replaced by more lucrative adult beds in hospitals across the country. Is that at least as big a priority as passing laws to keep trans middle schoolers from playing on the sports team of their choosing? Look, even if you agree that Democrats are trying to divide us up, are you so confident that your rhetoric isn't doing the same? Mm. I think that, that's the fundamental question. I'm really beyond trying to convince anybody that they you know, should or shouldn't care about any given issues. My only concern is whether or not people are prioritizing the things that actually materially affect their life or if they're falling for the traps that some culture warriors on both sides of the aisle try to set to obscure the extent to which people who are running our country, people who are at the top of both political parties, the elites, which know no political bias, they're everywhere in both parties at the top, are trying to keep you from noticing that you're getting a smaller and smaller share of the pie. Not because of each other, but because of the policies she, that they're setting. But she didn't announce, she only announced that she's leaving the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. She has not actually joined the Absolutely. Republican Party. So, you know, while I, I guess I, I agree with you that the Republican Party deserves criticism for various things and, uh, you know, that it, people should denounce them as well, um, she, she has not yet said, maybe that's going to change, but she hasn't said, this is everything I like about the Democratic Party, so I'm like I'm joining the Republican Party because I like it better. Maybe she'll join the Libertarian Party. Maybe she'll join the Forward Party. Maybe she'll just remain an independent who, you know, picks and chooses aspects of the parties that she agrees with. Yeah, what it comes down for me, I mean, her fundamental. I I, I think of her as most fundamentally defined by her opposition to nation building. That she was this crusading figure on that. On that issue, that was why she, that, in that clip you played, mm -hmm. that's what drove her decision making mm -hmm. in, uh, if we go back to 2016. And, and look, if, if that is, if that is the, if your focus, I mean, it is the case that the Democratic Party, more than the Republican Party, yeah, the Republican Party is failing this test too, but the Democratic Party is the ones in charge on this, and they are much, they're more in lockstep on, um, on a foreign policy that is, that is sadly and unfortunately antithetical to that. I think it's an indictment of Joe Biden, who it, it seemed a little bit, maybe, like he got it more than Donald Trump or Barack Obama or you know, any of our previous regimes that, that had pledged to end our, our, our commitments and our blunders. And he did do, he did it and won. from Afghanistan. But now, but now yeah. look at it. So. Yeah, look, I, and I completely take that point. And, this, and, and, this, I, know, this, and I know you feel that way, is, obviously. This is part of what I'm getting at. It's yeah. like, if, if she wants people to credit her and take her in good faith, which frankly, most people who aren't Republicans don't take her in good faith almost at this point, this is why. And it is suspicious. Look, if I sit here and say, uh, I hate Max. Macs are terrible computers, blah, 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 blah. The impl obvious oh, implication Max? is Who's that Max? I think Apple computers. App? Got it, gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> the, the obvious implication, I'm sorry, I'm an old head. That's what we used to call them in the 90s. <laughs> but the, the obvious implication is that I think PCs are better. You know, mm -hmm. we, we reason by inference all the time. Oh. And I think that there is a slippage here that is not accidental. Now, maybe that's unfair, and there's plenty of time to correct that. I would love to see her throw her support behind an independent third party, because that means that you have a real sincere criticism of what's causing the system to 
be spoiled. But you cannot, I'm sorry, you, I mean, you're right that the Democrats, as I said on my radar, the Democrats voted more for the Ukraine funding, but when 57 out of the 200 odd Republicans in the House still are the only ones who objected and the overwhelming majorities of, of Republicans voted for it when only, what was it, 10 or 11 uh, Republicans in the Senate didn't vote for that same package. What you're looking at is a, 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 a systemic problem. And the fact that there are a couple of Republicans who are doing the right thing on this one issue cannot be used as a solve for the Republican Party well, any more than Bernie Sanders or a couple of squad members being halfway decent on some things is a reason to forgive the Democratic Party for all of My sense is there is more genuine opposition to continuing to fund the Ukraine effort in, in conservative media more broadly, in sort of conservative politics, and there is not nearly to that degree within the Democratic coalition. I mean, like putting uh, putting the Ukraine flag in your bio is a Democratic yes. personality yes. right now. That but doesn't that, exist that on the That has no side. bearing on the systemic critique of the fact that both parties are being able to hide behind that yeah, reality sure. and take money hand over fist, trade stocks for, on these defense contractors, and laugh all the way to the bank while having the veneer of, oh, well, at least we're better than the other guy. That vote blue no matter who, vote red no matter who, that's what's causing all of these people to be, get, be able to get away with this sort of thing. And it would be wonderful if Tulsi Gabbard actually uh, continued the independent streak that people loved her for well, and was willing to call out the elites, where, whatever the, the letter is behind their name. Well, again, we would love to have her on the show. I would love to facilitate this discussion between the two of you, so we'll see if we can make that happen. We'll have more Rising after this. Stay with us. The Wall Street Journal investigation has found that thousands of officials across the federal government reported owning stocks that could rise or fall with decisions made by their own agencies. According to the Journal, more than 2,600 officials at various agencies disclosed stock investments while these companies were lobbying agencies for policies that benefited them. That's more than one in five senior federal employees across 50 federal agencies included in this investigation. Joining us now to discuss is former Ohio State Senator and host and executive producer of her new daily news show, Unbossed, premiering on October 17th, 1 p.m. on the TYT Network. Senator Nina Turner, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bree Joy. Good to be here with you and Robbie. It's good to have you. So, Senator Turner, tell us a little bit more about, about what's going on here. We've obviously covered some of the back and forth over this new law that Democrats are trying maybe to pass that would ban this kind of behavior. Nancy Pelosi has been on the record of being somewhat ambivalent about uh, precluding people from doing exactly this kind of thing. Uh, give us some background about what's going on here. You're being kind about her being ambivalent. I mean, she just doesn't want the law to pass. If she did, she would be working harder to do it. The Wall Street Journal has done an excellent job uncovering that this goes beyond just members of Congress. It is members of the executive branch of government who are positioning themselves financially off of the taxpayer's dime. And it is wrong, it is corrupt. It is wrong for the members of Congress, and it is also wrong for them to do as well. And there's already federal law on the books right now. Let us just start with following the law as it is, and then introduce stronger laws, or they can introduce stronger legislation that will pass into law. But there are laws on the books right now that prohibit government employees from benefiting financially from their work. But we see that it is... Uh, heavy in the executive branch as well as the Congress. And it is because, I mean, how's the Congress going to tell members of the executive branch not to do it when they themselves are doing it too? So we do need stronger laws and policies, but let's start with 
answering to or honoring rather the law that is already the laws that are already on the books right because this goes beyond uh really what we've been talking about uh you know time and time again about the the members of congress etc who who have made decisions or who have stocks and benefit you know trying to benefit from pfizer the pandemic or something like that um nancy pelosi herself because this is not just political figures this is this is agency this is so according to this the wall street journal report you know there was an official the EPA uh, purchasing oil and gas stocks. There was a Food and Drug Administration person um, owning uh, stocks in food companies that's on a no-buy list. So, so these, several of these, uh, the Defense Department, uh, defense company, uh, a person who worked there has uh, ties to defense company. And many of these agencies have, right, there, there's laws already, and then these agencies have, you know, in the same way, uh, uh, Many companies would have policies just for employees that they can't have really egregious conflicts of interest. I mean, I disclose, you know, on the show when we talk, if we're talking about someone who I think is a donor to the magazine I write for, you know, we would disclose that. Uh, there are just policies of that sort. And this goes, so this goes so far beyond, is my point, beyond even just our, our political figures who are at least subject to some scrutiny. This is, this is the rotting of our government from the inside out. That's exactly right, Robbie. And these people are political figures. They may not be elected, but they work for the public. And because Big Mama and Big Papa does not have the same type of insider information so that they can boost their finances, these folks should not be allowed to do it on the taxpayer's dime. If they want to do that, then they need to quit their jobs. And furthermore, Robbie, the point that you were making about rules. So yes, we have laws and then we have, they have policies within these different agencies. And according to the Wall Street Journal report, some of these agencies get to determine what policies they're going to follow internally. Like they can soften the policy to allow their, or interpret it in a way that allows their employees to get off with a slap on the wrist if they are even a chastised for it anyway. So this is simple. This is not complicated. Don't work for the government, and then you can be a free-wielding American citizen, and you can do all the trading that you want. But you know why they won't do that? Because then they won't have the extra special insider information. This is corrupting. It, 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 it further erodes trust with our our organizations and our and, and the federal government it just further erodes trust of institutions it is wrong and it needs to be corrected right away starting with the members of congress and reverberating through every single crevice of the federal government yeah, a couple of takeaways here because I mean this is this is kind of juicy stuff. I mean the conflict of interest here it does not go go above the head. I think of the average American. Uh, listen to this. The, the article notes that while the government was ramping up, yeah, I was just going to read this part. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> of big technology companies, more than 1,800 federal officials reported owning or trading at least one of four major tech stocks: Meta Platforms, that's Facebook, Alphabet Inc., Google, Apple Inc., or Amazon.com. More than two. 200 senior EPA officials, nearly one in three, reported investments in companies that were lobbying the agency. 
the EPA. <laughs> EPA employees and their families collectively owned between $400,000 and nearly $2 million in shares of oil and gas companies on average yeah. each year between 2016 and 2021. Well, and, and just <laughs> just sticking with the tech example, uh, for example, sure. I know people at Twitter, I've talked to comms people at Twitter who are very against the proposed regulations. They say they're going to benefit Facebook. Mm -hmm. And well, if you look, <laughs> their employees of the regulatory agencies own stock in Facebook. You know, how, how can we, I guess, how do you, how can we trust the regulatory apparatus to behave in the public interest when it is so conflicted in this way on a personal level for the people involved? And the Defense Department, I mean, really let's, let's not even get to the implications. Yeah, the, the, the implications. I'm sorry, go ahead, Senator Turner. No, I'm sorry. I was just answering, Robert. We can't trust it under these circumstances. Now, the circumstances can change very quickly. They need to follow and strengthen the policy. What good is a policy if you're not going to follow it? So they have policies. They need to follow those policies and strengthen them. We need to follow the laws as they exist right now and create stronger laws. Mm. Well, Senator Turner, you are hosting and executive producing your own daily news show, Unbossed, on the TYT Network, premiering on October 17th. What can we expect to see you cover over there? Well, I'm so excited about it, and thank you, for Hill Rising, for allowing me to come on and talk about the show. And we're going to talk about corruption, similar stories like what we're talking about today, and those systems. And to to talk to the, the folks about the fact that just because a system exists today doesn't mean it has to exist tomorrow, that we, the people, definitely have the power to change the system, that we don't have to accept things as they are. We can understand them as they are, but we can dream a bigger dream. And so we are going to talk about those issues. We're going to also have human interest stories. And Bree, you know I love my quotes, so I will definitely be doing a quote of the day because things seem so daunting right now. Just seem things are very hard for people. You know, I was just at the store yesterday. Eighteen uh, a carton containing uh, a carton containing eighteen eggs, eighteen eggs, seven dollars and seventy nine cents at the mm. grocery store. Butter is up, gas is up, everything is up, and so people are feeling rightfully so, especially among the working class, heavy heavy things are happening in this country. So not only are we going to talk about those heavy things, I also want to bring some levity to the moment and just remind folks that we, the people, do have the power to make that change. We just have to have the courage to do so and be willing to make some sacrifices along the way. And things can and they do change. We do have a history of that in this country, although sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Hmm. Well, Senator Nina Turner, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with your new show. Thank you, Robbie, and thank you, Bridget. And we'll have more rising right after this. President Joe Biden supported Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez's decision to resign from her post as president after leaked audio of her making racist comments during a private conversation were made public this week. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre made it clear Biden thinks others who are also guilty of doing the same should follow suit. Here's Jean-Pierre in Tuesday's press brief. The president is glad to see that one of the participants in that conversation has resigned, uh, but they all should. He believes that they all should resign. The language that was used and tolerated during that conversation was unacceptable and it was appalling. Uh, they should all step down. 
Nuri is heard in the audio describing a fellow council member's young son, who was black, as a, quote, little monkey. Though she stepped down from the presidency, she is only taking a leave of absence from her role as a council member. So there are other people in this discussion, mm -hmm. including it looks like um, Kevin DeLeon, which was a name I remembered because I had written something criticizing some policy of his, like, literally nine-ish years ago. Mm. Um, but I didn't remember that what that was, and it was a it was an affirmative consent bill that I thought was badly written. So okay, there we go. That's a, so a flashback says, having out. nothing to do with this. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, we uh, you know we covered this the other day. It's yeah. uh, it was uh, really horrifically offensive the conversation that was being had um you know look i don't relish necessarily tripping people up in private conversations and trying to surveil people all the time and obviously canceling people over um idiotic things they said a long time ago um but i i think political figure i think it's fair to hold political figures to the highest conceivable bar of personal behavior they work for us um it's not like i i've despite being very concerned about cancel culture, I've always said it is not cancel culture when you say, hey, this representative said something crazy before. Like, they, they hold them to the highest level of scrutiny. This is not the same as, you know, this employee of Starbucks or whatever, whatever tweeted something vaguely mm -hmm. anti-Semitic when they were 16. Mm -hmm. I know I don't think they should lose their job. I don't think mm -hmm. they should care at all. Mm -hmm. Totally against that. Um, you know, for public figures, it's it, it sort of mad. Well, how bad was it? How long ago was it? What was it? Yeah. Well, you know, we have to consider all these things. This was contemporaneous. And again, these are political figures. These are this is elected yeah. office. Those I, people mm. toss them all out the, the, the slightest well, wrongdoing. Look, I, I do think there's a public trust issue and it's you know, it's difficult to imagine how she can do her job at this point, given all of the scrutiny that's on her and given, you know, the pushback she's likely to get in meetings, knowing that, you know, in, in some ways, the racist statement, like the statements about the council member's son are the most kind of headline grabbing. The implications about how she was viewing the negotiations over how to district the city as a battle between the interests of um, Latinos and black people in the district as a zero-sum game are what I almost find to be more concerning because that's what has a longer reach and an actual effect on the black and brown people who are living in the district. Her comments about uh, the white council member's son were about, I mean, they were callow and cruel, but they were about her feeling that a white person wasn't yeah. raising a black kid in the right way. Like, that's that's her baggage. But what's going to affect the people who are living in those districts are whether or not she feels like she needs to parcel up districts in a way that aggregate resources according to groups that she is basically advocating for and trying to privilege. And it's concerning because it does this kind of zero-sum politics. I, I felt like a broken record. But it often ignores, ignores where the real wealth and power is, what kinds of um, inequities you're supposed to be trying to disrupt, and not pitting groups who have very little against each other. And not questioning the idea that a district may or may not be able to pay for its schools or pave its roads or maintain its parks because it doesn't have um, you know, the stadium in its zoning or some mm -hmm. other profitable thing in its zoning. You know, and, and so, I, yeah, I do think that she should probably set aside, be step, uh, stepping aside. However, if she steps aside, nothing about those dynamics are going to change. Right, right. And that's, that's the worst part of all of this. If there were a way to, to 
exchange her stepping aside for some kind of honest conversation and commission that could evaluate why she feels like she's in a position to have to make these zero sum kinds of calculations, I would I would happily bargain for her to keep her we job. Could put it, we could put it on our commission docket, right? We're doing a democracy, <laughs> commission. A democracy commission. We could do a racial healing. <laughs> but then I don't I don't want racial healing. I would love a space where she could be really honest about what has driven her to this place, where she could be really honest about what has happened in the past that causes her to have these kinds of resentments. Because yeah. look, everybody is holding these kinds of things in. Every, so many of us are forced. The way our politics she are designed. She went to DEFCON 3. She, she went to DEFCON 3. Yeah, like they, they, I think that people in a vacuum, given unlimited resources, I'm not saying there wouldn't be bigotry and bias, but it would be much more superficial and much less acute um, than it is today. And so rather than trying to make examples of people, especially since the underlying concerns are going to continue, I would much rather try to figure out a way to get to the bottom of what's driving that kind of animus. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, because people, well, people have uh, animus. They might have race-based animus or ethnicity-based animus or more geographical-based animus or gender-based animus. The, and, and that's, you know, like everyone, that's so many people. Like, obviously, everyone who holds views or has said something or thinks something about someone that is not totally great, like, if we just, if we unpersoned all of them, we would just have this huge mass of people who are, what, not employable, not, it doesn't make any sense. But for public officials, yeah. we can find other public officials. Yeah, the and public officials surviving things yeah. that no other person would survive, yeah. that, that you know, a CEO would have to step down. Again, an employee might be fired, um, et cetera. But the political figure, because they don't just get fired, they have to be voted out of office, and they have such tremendous incumbency protections and all sorts of other things. They, they often just increasingly just weather the storm. They say, no, I'm not going to resign. Yeah. Um, so it's surprising even that she, that she resigned this much. They have to, these people have to be dragged out of office, yeah. kicking and screaming. It's, it's interesting that no one seems to have put a clear, a clear um, request to resign on the other people in the room that, yeah. you know, I, mean, I, I guess I have to look, I guess I would have to look a little bit more closely at exactly what their conduct was. Because yeah, look, I don't if someone says something, on, honestly, this could have happened to me. If someone, I could be in a private conversation with someone comes up to you and starts saying some crazy thing. Sometimes and like, and you just, don't always, sometimes yeah. you, you, you do not denounce them because yeah. confrontation is, I get enough of it on the show. I don't like <laughs> go through my day seeking more confrontation. So sometimes you just don't push back. You have to do a calculation about what the outcome here is going to be. Yeah. Have they pushed back in the past and realized they're not going to change the hearts and minds of this woman? Yeah. You know, like, so I'm not saying that I think that there should be, but I am surprised that they're, you know, in Karine Jean-Pierre's statement, you know, there's an allusion to the fact that other people should resign but not yeah. specifically these, these, I think, two other people who were in the room. So we'll see how that continues to develop. But, you know, a fascinating lesson for how we should and shouldn't do politics going forward and what kind of standards we should set our, for ourselves as, a, as an American community. You weren't here on uh, Monday, which was Columbus Day, mm -hmm. uh, which I, 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 I wanted to, but I forgot there was, no, there was no reason to talk about it, I guess, based on what we were doing. My, my favorite clip from The Sopranos, the Columbus Day clip, where they're, where they're all sitting around getting mad about anti-Italian discrimination mm -hmm. because uh, some Native Americans are going to protest Columbus Day. Yeah. But Indigenous the best part say. of that is uh, Furio, who's the one character among them who is actually Italian from Italy. And he says, like, 
but I hate Columbus because Columbus was from Genoa, from northern Italy, and they, they, they mistreat us. I hate the north. Like, even within, again, there's ethnic tensions even within what would all be described now as the same people. Mm-hmm. My, my only point being, ten- tensions run deep and are confusing no, and No, no, I get it. And um, happy belated Indigenous Peoples Day to you, <laughs> my Italian friends. <laughs> all right, more rising after this. Stay with us. One Republican senator is under fire from all sides for racist comments made last week. Tommy Tuberville of Alabama made several inflammatory remarks about Democrats and black people while speaking at a rally in Nevada. Let's watch. Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bull- Here to discuss further is Newsweek contributor and business consultant, Denise Long. Welcome, Denise. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. So what was your reaction to the senator's comments? Well, I had to listen to it several times uh, to make sure I heard him correctly. And I think, obviously, he he needs to be censored by the Republican Party. And uh, I added them uh, with that statement uh, on Twitter. There is no place for racist inflammatory remarks in the public party. And that's part of the problem that we have in the party. The other part that disturbed me was how others in the crowd got really excited by what he was saying. Now, we might say that's what they're there to do. Uh, However, you know, I'd love to maybe do a scan of the audience to see if there were any people who withheld their excitement uh, based on what he said. I mean, yeah, and, and I, let's, I want to read it again. So I, is, he said, they want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They said they want reparations because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. So that so the they goes from I guess the they is just Democrats. Oh yeah, the plausible deniability of the they. Well, no, but they they want reparations because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. So that so because reparations are usually discussed in a racial context, the implication there is the people who do the crime are black people. I think that's the uh, Mm. problematic and indeed racially insensitive aspect of the of the comments yeah right? I, I agree with you that he was probably referring to Democrats however when he was talking about the people who do the crime right. given the narrative in the Republican Party about you know this you know 13 percent of population and 50 percent of the crime statistic um, that they keep citing which uh, we can definitely challenge that considering FBI crime statistics the underreporting that not all precincts uh, actually report crime they selectively do so for obvious reasons why people wouldn't want to report crime uh, in certain locales. Um, but it disturbs me that Tuberville felt, as a Republican from Alabama, uh, felt so incredibly comfortable disparaging the Black American community, right? So while we do talk about, many people talk about reparations in regard to race, what we do know is that conversation has evolved in the United States and gotten back to its original intent, which is that it is a lineage-based conversation. It's not about all Black people. It is about, and it's not even about all Black people in America. It is about those, again, 40 million plus Black Americans who descend from chattel slaves. And it's not just about slavery. It's also about 
about, you know, the 150 years after emancipation, and that Tuberville as a Republican, the party of Lincoln, the GOP, which they love to tout, right? My party loves to tout that. But when it comes to the rhetoric and comes to the policy, they seem to forget where they came from. They seem to forget their origin. They seem to forget how we got the name, the gallant or grand old party. That's very disturbing. And it's something that we need to root out in the party if we are going to survive and actually be leaders in our nation. Well, also, the people that do the do the crime, if we're talking about crime, I mean, there's an implication here that like black people are committing all the crime against right. white people. But of course, we, of course, we know black people are also disproportionately or, or low income people, minority people, people who live in cities, people who live in communities that are struggling are disproportionately the victims of crime. So that I mean, that would be it's. It's a very yeah, and that's where thing. that 1350 thing comes in, right? Black people are 13% of the population, and they complete, this is the rhetoric, and they complete 50% of FBI-reported crime statistics, uh, according to FBI statistics. What we do not do, though, right, if we're going to marry this idea of Black race-based crime to reparations, it's an argument that loses its uh, integrity on its face because reparations in the United States is for a specific, a specific group of families. What right. we need to do in, in terms of crime reporting in general, we need to also delineate the data about who the people are who are committing the crimes. Are those people American citizens and to what extent? What is their lineage? And are those people illegal immigrants and from where? So that we can look at what is really driving the crime in the United States. And if there are ways, for example, the crimes that you've seen against Asians in New York, many of those people who committed egregious crimes were not Black American descendants of slaves. They were people from African nations. And I'm not throwing Africa on the bus. It's just a reality. But what happens is the tensions in those places between races and ethnicities bring themselves here. People carry their history and those tensions with them, and they play out in our nation. And we think that it's just the color of the person that is really the indicator, but we need to dig deeper into that by delineating on multiple I, levels. I want to take a, a big step back because so much of this language that is used, that was used at this, at this rally mm -hmm. and other places in the GOP are so incredibly divisive and frankly kind of disrespectful of the populations that are living within the states that these people presume to want to have control over as legislators, to be responsible for the people living under their jurisdiction, to have their lives in the hands of the people who are in, the, in these states. Alabama is over 25% black. I think it's 27% black. So one out of four of the human beings that live in this state are being told that in the eyes of their legislator, they love crime, they, they want more crime, they are inherently criminal, they want to do crimes. And it strikes me as, as, as deeply sad, especially when you compare the frustration that I think many Republicans rightly had with being characterized as other, um, a deplorable, et cetera, because of their like of Trump. And when I compare the idea of being a deplorable, which I have from the jump condemned that sort of language when applied to voters, and look at the casualness with which um, a, a legislator is willing to say that 25 plus percent of its population are inherently criminal and moreover, you know, don't don't deserve 
deserve um, don't deserve consideration for very recent crimes that have been at the hands of the state that have befallen their families. When we're talking about redlining, when we're talking about the fact that so many Black Americans, including you know my own parents, were born into a world in which they literally did not have equal rights under the law, especially in the South. My father's family is from Virginia. He graduated from the first integrated uh, high school class in his school. All of his older siblings obviously went through a segregated school system. These are, this is not ancient history. These are my aunts and uncles, as right. you well know. I mean, what do you make of the inconsistency there between calls for unity and the fact that unity seems not to include black Americans who are, again, are 25% of the population in a state like Alabama? Yeah, Bria, that's that's uh, an amazing point. When we look at the southeastern United States, what was the Confederacy, we know that a very large percentage of the overall black population in America still resides there, still resides in the land um, that was fought over uh, to maintain slavery and white supremacy. If you don't like that language, read their constitutions. They said it, not me. Uh, and so here's a couple things that I see are happening. One, I see in the Republican Party, while there may be calls for unity from some, uh, especially when it becomes election time, what we see is the people who get the mic, the people who are the loudest, the people who are sent out to rally the base are the people who spout this very, I'm going to call it racist and pre-Civil War, pre-Civil Rights, Bull Connor type language. And we have to resolve that contradiction if we're going to have integrity as a party and if we're ever actually going to unite our country in a way where we can move forward uh, in unity and actually make the poetry on paper a reality in 2022 and beyond. Well, Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we'll have more Rising right after this. It seems like last week's controversy has hit Georgia GOP Senate candidate Herschel Walker, where it hurts. The former NFL star trails behind Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock by two points in a new Emerson College Hill poll, a two-point bump for Warnock. This, of course, comes after bombshell allegations that the staunch pro-life Walker urged and paid for a previous girlfriend's abortion in 2009. Walker has vehemently denied these claims and recently told Fox News that the reports have awoken a grizzly bear. In the state's gubernatorial contest, Republican incumbent Brian Kemp has a five-point lead over Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams. So, this, you know, this is the continuing, salacious, just awful yeah. kind of story. I mean, um, we were just talking about this in, a, in another segment. Um, involving the racist statements that were caught on tape by the L.A. City Council member. And it's, it's this question of public integrity. Like, do we care public figures are on record having been accused of spousal abuse or not taking care of their children or paying for abortions in, in, contra in conflict with their stated policy on the matter or their stated beliefs on the matter? You know, I think the answer is that might be an issue in primaries. I don't think it's as big of an issue in general elections. Cause what do you mean by that? Because at the end of the day, if you have a choice between two people who are going to vote the way you want to vote, and one of them has morals and ethics and the other doesn't, sure, we have room for morals and ethics. If it's coming down to, is the person going to pull the lever in the right way, regardless of if it's hypocritical, on an issue like abortion or whatever other thing is your, is your motivator, then at the end of the day, it, it doesn't, it's not illogical to stop caring. And I think that's, that's the place where, unfortunately, we're, we're in as a country, where over and but over again- That is again, how most people feel. Both, they're both gonna, most people are going to vote for an ROD if they're yes, an ROD. The, the Tara Reid allegations came up, and people were very quick, including Stacey Abrams, before there was any time to have an investigation 
investigation or really know what had happened, were very quick to say that Joe Biden, who had been accused credibly of um, having inappropriate conduct with, I think, eight women at the start of the campaign, said that there's no there there. It couldn't possibly be the case. And that's not to say one way or the other that I know what happened. But immediately there was this reaction that said, we're going to protect the candidate because the candidate was already locked in. So it's disappointing to kind of see how much fundraising Herschel Walker has been able to do off of this. And that, and that one was hurt him more. But. And that one was really directly hypocritical because yeah. the standard that Biden himself mm. had articulated for how to handle sexual misconduct claims of that nature was automatic belief I in all accusation. Women. There was no question that under the standard he had articulated, yep. he should have not been yep. the candidate. He should have been hounded yep. out of public life. Now, I think that standard is stupid. Well, I do sure. not support it but at there all. there's also no investigation. You know, yeah. So like Kamala Harris earlier on, had said she believes the women at the start of the primary suddenly mum on the issue when the Tara Reid stuff right. came up. There was obviously different a difference between how the Christine Blasey Ford allegations were handled right. versus Tara Reid, and on and on. But that that's the way the cookie com cookie crumbles. Um, in this case, I think that people Democrats are even more upset because there does seem to be something about morals. There's a lot of hand moralizing around the issue of abortion that makes one's willingness to to vote for restrictions on abortion that you yourself mm -hmm. weren't subject to or don't really believe in to seem particularly unethical. Well, but speaking of uh, moralizing, uh, so Senator Raphael Warnock is uh, has a little bit of a scandal uh, going as well. Some reporting from the Washington Free Beacon. Um, no surprise that this is being reported by a conservative outlet rather than the mainstream media. Just didn't have time for this one, I guess, to do any digging. But uh, so he is paid a salary by his church. Um, or a monthly stipend that's uh, pretty high. Seven, he's paid a salary and a monthly stipend of $7,400. Uh, but this church uh, owns a, a low-income or, I think, borderline homeless people apartment complex uh, that it has evicted over the pandemic, evicted people from with some regularity, including, according to the Free Beacon, over someone owed only $28 in past due, yeah, and, and they evicted them anyway. Yeah, look, look at my last radar from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, landlords are horrible because no matter, I'm sorry, like even the best landlords often find themselves in situations where they're justifying ev evicting people over relatively small sums of money that are going to cause extremely huge hardships to the people involved. And the fact that a, a spiritual institution is owning these properties and treating these people in ways that you know, yeah. I'm not, not devout, but I would consider to be rather ungodly. This, rather this is a building for the chronically homeless and those with mental disabilities. I mean, this is a this is one solution to the problem we bring up on the show a lot: homeless, mentally ill people who are a danger to themselves and, and the others. One good solution is for communities of faith, religious and charitable organizations to to minister to them, to provide for them, to keep them off yeah, the Yeah, I mean, I think this is a reason why, you know, charity doesn't play the same role as government-based social supports, because there's no oversight, there are no the standards. charities are giving all the money to senators? Well, it's, it's well, I, if, if you want to bait me into a, a defense of uh, religious institutions that often prey upon their flock and are extractive and predatory, it's not going to be me, because I completely agree with that. That's for people in their own religious communities to decide how they want to handle that and what they want to do for, to their leadership, because that's a very sensitive issue, and it's none of my business. But I certainly, you're not going to catch me defending this kind of practice, and it's deplorable. What you have to get to at the end of the day is all the Democrats are going to line up and say, well, again, if I had an option between a version of Raphael Warnock who, you know, Weren't, mm -hmm. didn't have a church that owned this building that behaved in this way and a version that did, 
I would choose, uh, sorry, the version that didn't, I would choose the version that didn't. There's also probably a more robust conversation to be had, not that this excuses the underlying behavior in any way, about how much Raphael Warnock, the leader of this institution, is aware of what's happening at, at a building owned by his church that's obviously mm-hmm. got a lot of things going on at the same time. I believe there have also been, some, I've, I've seen alleged you know, accusations lobbed at him from his ex-wife, or I believe he's recently separated from his wife. I know she's said some, some th- she's accused him, I think, of running over a foot. Again, these are, yeah. again, the messy personal stuff is always messy. Dudes and do you not don't... rock. What? <laughs> Dudes do not rock well, in this case. Well. Look, but that, this is exactly the issue. This is exactly yeah. the issue. And, it, and, it's, that, and at that level, honestly, I don't know that the public needs to, again, a lot of people go through difficult personal things. Public officials need to be held to a much higher standard than ordinary people. But we're in a general election. The primary time for deciding those kinds of things is long behind us. And now people have to to pick the lesser of two evils. And that's why I I honestly think downright, like, on the policy basis. Well, I don't. I'm not voting for any of these people. Yeah, on a policy basis, I think it's pretty obvious um, whose policies are going to inert to the benefit of the people of Georgia. I'm obviously. But I might, as a third-party voter, sometimes there isn't always a third-party candidate in the race. So theoretically, my vote could be up for grabs for an R or a D if you're not an utterly reprehensible person and you don't support military right, COVID which restrictions. Is why, that's the, that's I mean, the best I mean, way to win my vote. Which is why I was trying to say that policy should lead. And this is what Bernie Sanders has recently criticized the Democrats of doing. They've basically been running on abortion to the exclusion of a lot of the economic issues that still drive voters and our voters' primary concern all across the country. He thinks it's a mistake. And I think that if you're in this situation where everyone's saying everyone else is immoral, it's even more imperative for you to make it clear why you, on an economic basis, outside of what's in your heart and soul, are going to actually provide for the people in your community. All right, well, we'll have more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Vice's motherboard obtained unaired footage of rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, in a head-scratching interview with Fox News host Tucker Carlson. The network left out part of the sit-down with Ye, in which he makes inflammatory, if not borderline bizarre, comments about Jewish people and how he would prefer his children to celebrate Hanukkah. Here's some of that footage. Planned Parenthood was made by Margaret Sanger, a known eugenics with the KKK, to control the Jew population. When I say Jew, I mean the 12 lost tribes of Judah, the blood of Christ, who the race, the people known as the race black really are. This is who our people are. I was biting my tongue on my political opinion because I thought it would be better for my children. And now you look up and my kids are going to a school that teaches black kids a complicated Kwanzaa, I prefer my kids knew Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering. (laughs) Kwanzaa doesn't, you know, so they don't teach even Christmas itself, Christmas. In the unaired portion of the interview, Yame even made a claim that, quote, fake children had been planted in his home to manipulate his kids. So to be clear, the kind of kooky thing he was saying there was not the Margaret Sanger did, in fact, believe in eugenics and yeah. has been denounced by Planned Parenthood itself. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the well, I think the real, I would use a word stronger than kooky, but the thing about 
And I was kind of with them. You know, a lot of people, a lot of black people aren't especially excited about Kwanzaa. They feel like there are a lot of religions that black people actually practiced before they were brought over as slaves. And, you know, Kwanzaa isn't necessarily it for folks. Okay, if you prefer them to be, to study Judaism, completely understandable. But then it gets to that last bit about financial engineering. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. At least if they study Judaism, there'd be some financial engineering. I mean, the, the, the difficult thing about all of this is that, you know, he has t spoken publicly about his mental illness. He has always had this kind of erratic behavior. It's unclear what he's saying half the time, and there's just enough for you to know that it's bad, but not enough to really follow the thread in a lot of instances. And it just, it feels like a train, a train wreck you'd rather not be watching. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would rather not be watching it. I don't, oh, oh. like, he's not a, he's not a, like, why do, we, why do we seek wisdom in things celebrities have to say and, and have to think? This is, a, this is a constant conservative criticism. Well, but let me ask you this. It's Tucker Carlson who's chosen to interview him on his show. Do you think that that was a mistake? And moreover, what do you think about the editorial choice to cut these parts out of the aired special? Probably not. I mean, if Kanye West wanted to be on our show, we'd probably interview him, right? If Kanye West people called up tomorrow and said he wants to be on Rising... We, you're well, saying sure, we would but, say no to that? No, no, no way. No way on earth. You're, I mean, what, I'm asking about this yeah. critique of why do we look to celebrities for advice. I mean, that is, yeah. a, is a question that could be put to anybody who's ever interviewed him, including Tucker Carlson, in this instance. And then, moreover, what about the second question about, you know, did, did Tucker's producers clip this stuff out to make the rest of the interview seem more palatable, to kind of save Kanye from himself? Are these even the worst parts of the interview? Because quite a, quite a few nutty things were actually aired well right which is why which is why i don't think i mean what, what would there be their interest in in preventing you from right he they it, he says plenty of nutty things in the interview as it aired so i so i presume there was some other editorial reason for cutting it well, down it they, felt, they thought that was not in yeah. their judgment that was a less interesting part than what they aired there's, i mean you, you do have to make decisions like that all the time absolutely. we have to make decisions like that etc absolutely but there was one part of the interview that we didn't play where kanye says something and says actually can you cut that out that that doesn't sound great i mean there is a there's a degree of self-awareness here and to be clear not just Tucker carlson but candace owens and a number of other conservative figures had in the lead up to this interview and to the lead up to his more clearly anti, or I shouldn't say more clearly, but clearly anti-Semitic tweets, um, gone really fully in in support of Kanye West in a way that could be awkward if a certain level of anti-Semitism is breached. And you Candace like to, defended the tweet. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what you've seen is, strangely, a lot of people just doubling down. I don't know that I've seen anything from Tucker since the no, anti-Semitic no. tweet, but Candace Owens at very least avers that it wasn't anti-Semitic at all, which is an an interesting posture for a mainstream conservative yeah, person to be taking. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of Candace Owens, but that, that's a criticism of her, not of, I mean, Tucker just well, had this interview with... But the, but the question is, if the worst parts of the interview come out, the parts that kind of rise to the level of anti-Semitism in the tweet, does that put Tucker in a difficult position having come out so enthusiastically in defense of, of Kanye did, earlier in the week? That. Yes, he did. I mean, come on. He says, yeah, wow, people are trying to silence you. You have great ideas. This is, this, now I understand why you're so dangerous to the public. You know, the, the, I could pull up the title of the videos there. They are uncritically supported. Now, I think that you and I did an interview of Kanye West. It, we would, we would, it, it would be titled and characterized in a way that didn't 
imply that we were like team Kanye. It would just be an informational interview. Yeah. And I think that there, there is obviously, obviously a incentive for Tucker Carlson to not want to be associated with the, yeah, the I don't worst think he tried to so I think bigoted aspects of what he said. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's not what I thought he did. But. Yeah. Well. Well, Sharon Osbourne, speaking of uh, celebrities, the wife of famous rock star Ozzy Osbourne, she weighed in on some of Ye's comments that did not make it to air, namely that the BLM organization is nothing but a scam. TMZ caught up with her while she was out shopping on Hollywood's glamorous Rodeo Drive. Watch this. We gave $900,000 to that, and um, I'd like my money back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she could have said that before. <laughs> When asked about Ye's head-turning White Lives Matter t-shirt, Osborne said she doesn't understand his messaging, but that she, but that he shouldn't be canceled. Um, I, I, so that was, that was a great, I'd like my money back from giving it to BLM, which again, which this is going to the, you know, the gross, which we've covered on the show before, the gross mishandling of funds to the Black Lives Matter organization, which increasingly just looked like a front for those several individuals yeah. to buy like luxury houses for themselves, to buy hype houses, because yeah. this is how they were going to spread the message of Black Lives Matter. This is how they were going to promote police accountability and non-racism was by buying a beautiful mansion to make TikTok videos or yeah, something. Yeah, it's so disrespectful that was their claim. <laughs> to the millions of people who marched in the street, who gave their time to try to organize real right. efforts on the ground, who gave money because they were genuinely moved yeah. by the image that we were all moved by of a, of a human being, a fellow American, a citizen being choked to death in the street by someone yeah, who's give, supposed give to protect the state. Give to the Innocence the Project or something. Yeah, and, to, to... and moreover, you know, the fact that I think actually Candace Owens has a has a documentary about this that's airing this week sometime where she, she she goes and follows up with Floyd's family and other people in the community and finds that they're living in substandard conditions and have not saved any of this money. And obviously it's a travesty. Yeah. It's a While travesty the founders that, are in multiple million dollar right. mansions. I, I think there, there's no real defense of how they behaved yeah. and what is to be done with the $60 million or so that's left sitting in the pot of the $90 million that were raised. That's a really important question. And I hope that the people who had a sincere commitment to these issues are able to take the reins again yeah. and do something productive with what's left. But I certainly don't begrudge Sharon Osborne. No, I think she speaks for a lot of people. She <laughs> speaks for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute with more Rising. The family of a 17-year-old boy shot by police while sitting in his car eating a hamburger, well, they say he's currently unconscious and on life support. Earlier reports that Eric Cantu is in stable condition are false, according to the family's lawyer. Hmm. San Antonio police officer James Brennan, who was still on his probationary period, was fired after shooting Cantu while confronting him in the parking lot of a McDonald's. Here's the body camera footage. We want to warn you, it is graphic. Get out of the car. Shots fired! Shots fired! Shots fired! Although Cantu was originally arrested for evading police and ag aggravated assault, prosecutors have announced they will not be seeing those charges through. According to recent reporting from Curbed, Police chases now kill more people nationwide than tornadoes, lightning, and hurricanes 
combined. Mm. Yeah, that video, it never ceases to amaze me because there isn't an announcement about who the people are. It's people dr with guns drawn, wrenching open a door, you know, responding to someone whose both hands are visible on a, on, a, on a McDonald's burger and then to start shooting like that as he starts pulling away as I think a lot of people frighten that situation. Uh, you know, wi and do. wildly um, putting at risk any bystanders, there's someone else in the car, and that there's that building right there. I mean, just opening fire wildly, even if you even if you are discounting the risk to the person, which I don't think you should. Which but you, you're putting the. We, yet, we don't want our police to just randomly spray bullets and, and, everywhere. And here's, here's the fundamental the point. Provocation. Like, I I do think. That it, the, the, the article about the, the cars causing so many uh, deaths as well, it's, it's interesting that all part and parcel of the same thing. And what's causing a lot of those deaths is this practice called pitting, where police use the car to stop another car for, let's say, a speeding violation or some other kind of traffic issue. There was one incident, or at least one incident, where uh, police officers stopped a bike so hard that the bike's wheels ended up getting jammed up in the car's wheels. There are kinds of force that are kind of presumptively assumed to be relatively safe when they obviously aren't stopping a bike with a car, stopping a car with another car, creating a car crash. That if you really think it through and you think about the, the risk involved, it obviously is not commensurate with what the objective of the stop is. Is the objective to catch people who are speeding? If the risk is death, if you're trying to stop people, someone from, let's say, fleeing an actual crime, if the risk is death, is death a sentence that would have been put upon the person if they were tried by a jury of their peers and convicted? No? Well, then why in an extrajudicial setting are we saying it's, it's, it's appropriate for police officers to be acting with that level of force? And I think it comes down to a fundamental lack of respect for human life. There are people who are, have, are very famous this week for wearing White Lives Matter t-shirts. Is it White Lives Matter to encourage a police department who would shoot at a young white boy like this who's speeding off in a vehicle? Or is this a fundamental respect, uh, disrespect for human life that is really calling into question people who say, well, all lives matter. Obviously, we live in a world where that's not I the mean, case for so many people. Look, I think this specific incident is pretty clear cut. Um, it's not even really clear that what he was doing was trying to flee the sea. It's like a it's like no. a nanosecond before he is fired on wildly. Um, more generally, though, I mean, I don't know that. So these chases are very dangerous. Um, yes. But I don't like. What is the? What is obviously, the we're not going to arrive at a place where the if you just if you're pulled over for speeding and you just drive off wildly and the police are just supposed to say, oh, Robbie, oh well, let's let's play that out. If 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 the police were in a position to chase you, pulled up behind you, and you sped off, they have your driver's license. Right. I mean, so they have your um your. But that's what prompted plate. this encounter but because this police officer. Yeah. thought that this person had driven away from him but, on a but previous... Let's, but let's talk about it. They have your license plate. Right. As we talked about extensively on the show, we live in a surveillance state. There's right. traffic cameras at almost every corner. So even if for some reason they didn't see your license plate, they can track you and follow you. You're registered at the DMV. So is the worst case scenario here that they come to your house 30 minutes later, show up at your door the next morning, follow you to your job 
doing police work the next day yeah, and I arrest mean, you or question well, you or do whatever at that point. And isn't that a better outcome than chasing people down the street in a way that can cause pedestrians to be hit, other cars to end up in a pileup, and the person themselves who, again, has not been convicted of any crime, and in this case, clearly hasn't even really done anything wrong, could lose their lives? Like, it's, it's worth playing these scenarios out because it's often presented as this all or nothing. Well, criminals will get away if we don't shoot them dead. One, you don't know that they're criminals. Even And two, even if they are, they don't deserve the death penalty. And three, there is still an ability to hold people right. accountable, even if you don't catch them this moment. And what is it about our society? What is it about how police are being taught and trained that makes them feel the level of urgency that they would rather risk the lives of their fellow citizens? than to simply delay the capture of somebody or the questioning of somebody for 30 minutes, 24 hours, whatever it is down the line. Okay, but I also just, I don't understand the impulse the, to, to flee wildly from a police interaction because that increases the risk to your own life dramatically. You, you, so don't, you should not do that. You don't do see that. a video like that. You don't see I don't see the, a video like that and say, wow, more people should... should Robbie, you slam just, on the gas. You just admitted that you don't encounter. think it's clear that that person even did that. It's not clear right. to me that, that person didn't slam on the gas. It looked like they were kind of rolling away. Were they in? in were they in park? I, I have no idea what yeah, that I situation was. I think this one is, is clear cut, but we've covered other police. Um, but this, this is a this is a burden shifting that is just not appropriate. The average well, you're citizen. About this wait in minute, but wait a minute. The police standard for whether or not their behavior, the law has designed it so the police standard for their behavior, whether or not is is legitimate or not, is whether a reasonable, as a reasonable police no, no, officer don't, standard. Well, don't try to bait wait me at defending the police. Wait, wait a minute, I'm not it's trying to bait you. I'm, I'm, I'm directing this to an audience, not to you. A reasonable police officer standard basically means that whatever they decide was going to save their life, whatever yeah. their, their, their subjective experience of danger is, justifies all kinds of behavior. But we don't give the same credibility. We don't give that same flexibility to the average person who is not trained, who has probably never had a gun pointed to them, who is sitting there in the dark enjoying their dinner probably after a late shift to themselves. And we are expected to exercise all of this aplomb all of this gravitas, all of this surety in a moment of extreme panic. Why don't we hold police officers who are armed by the state to protect our communities qualified to a immunity, higher standard? Which needs to be gotten rid of. Qualified immunity should be gotten it is, rid of. It is partly because of qualified immunity, and it's partly because of a rhetoric that puts all of the onus on untrained civilians to behave like soldiers and to have the responsiveness of a highly trained police force when we don't hold a highly trained police force to those same standards. Yeah, this... I do not disagree. Don't make me out to be like the pro-police voice on the on the panel. I want to get rid of qualified immunity. This police officer was fired, and they should explore whether it's appropriate to file charges. Oh, yeah. It may very well and, be and it's appropriate. And also worth noting, this police officer was apparently on probation. So there's a lot of conversation, oftentimes wrong, uh, about how when a criminal does something that they were out on bail or they shouldn't be. Why, th this, this is a similar situation. A police officer who arguably should not have been in the streets in the first instance, where's the conversation about the lack of accountability for the police I department did, um, who let this person out here who clearly shouldn't have been just out Just by here. the way, I did look up, because I was curious yeah. about this statistic that there's more by, uh, uh, deadly car chase deaths than, what do they say, hurricane and lightning strikes and all that. So this is, so I traced this statistic back to a Slate magazine piece from a while ago. Uh, and uh, so police chases are deadlier than tornadoes, lightning, and hurricane combined. Really, that's almost, though, because those things are not 
do not kill as many people in, in recent times as you might think. So the, the statistic is in the past three and a half decades, more than 5,000 bystanders and passengers, and then more than 11,000 people cumulatively. So 11,000 people in like 40 years, which is not, which is still. No, well, if it's your person, number. Robbie, no, it's your person, absolutely. it matters quite a bit. Um, nice to know the, the extreme weather deaths are even lower than that, but it's another, another conversation. I see you rolling your eyes at me. We'll have more rising after this. Stay tuned. Retired NFL star Brett Favre, who reportedly sought help from state officials and others between 2017 and 2020 to fund a volleyball stadium at the University of Mississippi, where his daughter attended, told Fox News yesterday that he is the victim of unjustified media smears and that he did not know that the millions used to build a volleyball stadium were federal welfare funds. I have been unjustly smeared in the media, Favre said in a statement. I have done nothing wrong, and it is past time to set the record straight. He went on to say, quote, no one ever told me, and I did not know, that funds designated for welfare recipients were going to the university or me. I tried to help my alma mater, USM, a public Mississippi State University, raise funds for a wellness center. My goal was and always will be to improve the athletic facilities at my university. This comes a week after Favre hired ex-Trump White House attorney Eric Hirschman to represent him amid the ongoing investigations over his welfare scandal. That was probably a good idea, according to the Mississippi Free Press. Yes, he should lawyer up. That's just <laughs> pretty basic at this point. Um, yeah, the but it, so you're, you're persuaded. I, I know. You're, you're put off the, the trail now. You're like, well, nothing to see here. Look, I obviously did a I radar kid, about this a couple of weeks ago. I find it to be disgusting. And to be clear, there is an ongoing criminal, uh, both criminal and civil investigations, I believe, ongoing that don't implicate. The criminal investigation does not implicate uh, Brett Favre at this point. But there, the investigation that is ongoing is the largest welfare fraud investigation in Mississippi state history. It's a really big deal. It's much bigger than Brett Favre, and people should you know, look at that radar and really understand how far reaching this is. But let's go back to what we do know about this. The text. We've the seen text. his text where he says, is it possible to hide this information right. so let's, from let's, the public? Let's be specific here. The texts say from August 3rd, 2017, Brett Favre, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much. Uh, the administrator of these funds replied, and so, no. And so I, I, wait, I guess the subtext of that is so now he's claiming, he's saying, and is there any way that I don't find out where this is coming <laughs> from and how much? All right. Well, let me, let me just wrap this up for a second. We never had that information, came the reply. I understand you being uneasy about that, though. Let's see what happens on Monday with the conversation, uh, blah, blah, blah. He says, okay, thanks. Follow up, we just got off the phone with Governor, then Governor Phil Bryant. He's on board with us. We will get this done. Awesome. I needed to hear that for sure. So the idea that he's now saying that he did not know that these were welfare funds, I guess you could really parse that and say, uh, he, he didn't know that they were welfare funds, but he, for some reason, was concerned that wherever, whatever the origin was, it would reflect right. poorly on him. Right, he knew the public wouldn't want him to know what he exactly. was doing here. Exactly, So whatever like wordsmithing he's trying to do here to pretend that, oh, I didn't know they were literally welfare funds, perhaps, is really dishonest, is really bad faith, and I don't think it's doing him any favors. Awesome, I needed to hear that for sure. That's how he, he needed the assurance <laughs> that the public was Would not never going to find, find out. out about this. Exactly. So that, uh, it's pretty damning. Um, yeah, this whole thing is, and right, wasn't that his daughter was a student there, was a, was a, 
right? That was the... You know, his the, daughter was on the volleyball team yeah. for this volleyball team. I mean, that yeah. was the whole... It was a big nepotism yeah. uh, circle. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that speaks to... I just wanted to help, you know, a school that had meant so much, so to, much me to me as a young like, boy malarkey. or something. Yeah. Malarkey. Moreover, there was yeah. the other million dollars, which he did pay back. He was, you know, forced to pay back that he was given personally for speeches that he never gave. $1.1 million. And by the way, he didn't have to pay back the interest on that money, which was considerable and a loss to the state. So to be clear, as I mentioned in my radar, this is a state, it's the poorest state in the union. The average welfare benefit there for a family of three was something like $150 a month. It was paltry, a paltry sum. Moreover, so many people in the state never even get to take advantage of that minuscule mm -hmm. welfare benefit because of all of the hoops that you have to jump through to even qualify it and get it. Most people don't have the where, you know, the, the ability to process all of that administrative, especially if you're living on the edges and on the margins already. And here comes multi-millionaire Brett Favre, who is handed, handed millions and millions of dollars for his pet personal projects and now has the audacity to play victim, to play victim in this instance and make a play for public support. Is he getting any? Is this working? Yeah. I don't know. Because <laughs> it seems like the sports world, at least, I mean, this doesn't seem the to be sports one world, of the, the, pub, the funding of stadiums is so corrupt at the, in the, at the major levels, mm -hmm. NFL, NHL, et cetera. Um, there are so many examples. Uh, you know, a, a team will have a stadium that the taxpayers subsidize, and then, like, 20 years later, they're like, oh, this is no, we need a new one. And then there'll be some exorbitant tax on like local small businesses or, or hardworking residents of the state. They have to pay it so that there will be an even fancier stadium yes. under dubious, completely economically nonsensical yes. rationales that this is good for the economy of the state. But you're making, you're making the people who are already working, who are already creating economic activity in the state, yes. you are forcing them to pay money. It's just a slush fund. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a, a slush, slush fund. fund. And so I, what I've seen from the, the sports community so far is around condemnation of Brett Favre. I mean, any number of Shep Smith, uh, not Shep Smith, sorry. Um, the, I'm, now I'm revealing that I'm really bad at all these sports commentators' names. Stephen A. Oh, Stephen no, you a. can't Smith. come here for help. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Stephen A. Smith. Not a sports You know, guy. all of these people have, you know, just really gone in on Brett Favre in oh, a way the that, guy that who yells? feels. The guy who <laughs> I yells? Think, I know that ESPN guy. Yell? Um, but I know who you mean. Yeah, like, I, I think that, that, that I haven't seen anybody really trying to mount a defense, which is a really positive thing, because there's so many things in this yeah. country that get politicized, and it becomes, like, somehow a racial issue or this kind of issue. This one, it seems clear, when very rich people People take advantage of very poor, poor people. Everybody is on board with how disgusting that is. Unfortunately, that is the story of so much of what happens in America. And so much of what we talk about is not that story. And I do wish, given how obviously this is a model for something that is a uniting kind of a framing, we talked more about how how much asset forfeiture is responsible from shipping money from the poor and taken by the yeah. police office, uh, office yeah. at the hands of the Not just the, the poor, anyone, but obviously disproportionately yeah, the poor, but, yeah. but really anyone. Yes, <laughs> how, how the IRS goes after poor people yeah. more than it does rich people, and on and on and on down the line. How much wage theft is the, the, the largest volume of theft that happens in America? Is employers not paying their, employ paying their employees wages that are owed and getting off scot-free because the, the legal processes to have to claim that is, is are so 
Byzantine. And I know of many state-based conservative think tanks who are working very hard to get rid of asset forfeiture, for mm. instance. It's a very uniting thing. Um, you know, it, it, it happens to a lot of people who are involved in perfectly legal under state law, yeah. um, uh, uh, drug, uh, marijuana-based yeah. businesses, yeah. for instance, or just, or just people who have cash on hand. They work jobs that involve cash. Yeah. Um, you know, cops take people. They could have the wrong. They could be searching the wrong place. They could, they could have nothing to do mm -hmm. with the with the crime they're investigating, and the police will confiscate your car, mm -hmm. cash they find, things that are yours, and then you have to prove mm -hmm. that you should get them back. Mm -hmm. It's not. There's no trial for this. Mm -hmm. They just take it, and then you can never get it back because you can't prove that they were wrong. It's yeah. so obscene. It's just legalized theft. And there, there is actually a lot of conservative outrage, yeah. over, obviously a lot of libertarian Well, outrage. free free tip to the uh, wannabe populace out there, if you want to win some elections, Bernie's been giving some advice about how to talk, focus on eco uh, the economy. I would say also maybe consider some of these kinds of issues. Yeah. And let's see if we can have a more united, uh, more prosperous for working and poor people type of a country. That's great. Alrighty, well that does it for us. Tomorrow on Rising, Michael Schellenberger will be back to get into the ongoing debate over how best to address climate change. Uh, yeah, we had that interview with him earlier this week or last, last week, week that got uh, cut off because he had another media hit, so we'll be really glad to have him back for more full conversation. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. We are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Roku. Yay! All right, that. we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.